Hi, everybody. Welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers who sit around, drink, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's hosts are Chaz and Karen Brinchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 89, Interview with Jennifer Brozek. Welcome, Jennifer. Hello. Jennifer and I met at one of Cat Rambo's amazing uh, academies of screenwriting, and Jennifer is just this incredibly talented woman who's done a lot of writing both on her own and editing of other people's works and recently nominated for the Bram Stoker Award and a British Fantasy Award. And oh, my God, Jennifer Brozak. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, I was going to start because... You have an area that you have written in that fascinates a lot of friends. We have talked about fanfic before. And where does the line blur and how do you become involved with writing Battletech novels and writing, um, I believe you were also in Shadowrun novels and other Valdemar novels, uh, different people's intellectual property world. How do you get involved with that sort of thing? Well, uh a lot of people get involved by working in a different part of a gaming or video game industry. Uh, they become proofers. They are game testers. Um, they basically prove themselves as uh, smart and intelligent and can work to a deadline and also know the product. Uh, and from there, there sometimes are open calls for submissions like Battletech for right now has a magazine called Shrapnel, and it has an open call. Anyone can write a Battletech no a short story and submit it to Shrapnel. And that's it could be as simple as that to get you into working in the Battletech arena. That's yeah. extremely cool. We'll put a link to that out there. Yes, you should. It's a great uh, magazine. It's edited by Phil Lee. And Valdemar? I thought Valdemar was pretty, uh, pretty much a closed world with just Misty on it. Well, there's... Okay, so there, there's media tie-in, and then there's tie-in, and it's it's semantics. Uh, for Valdemar, uh, or like I've written for V-Wars, Masters of Orion, Predator, Valdemar, the anthologies, uh, the world is owned by Mercedes Lackey. Uh, she has approval on all pitches for the anthology and all approval for all stories. Uh, I work with John Helfers a lot. Uh, he works with uh, Misty. And I actually got into writing for Valdemar when I was sitting down with John at a convention. Remember those? I miss conventions. Oh, <laughs> so we all much. miss conventions. <laughs> and I guess this was almost 10 years ago. I said, you know, I'd love to write for Valdemar, but I would write about the bards. And John said, we don't get enough bard stories. Okay, <laughs> I'll ask Misty. Oh, nice. And that was it. That's actually how I got in to write for Valdemar. But I also, at that time, had already been writing for Shadowrun. So right. I had and already proven myself. Now, I spent hours of playing Shadowrun, but the idea that, that you can get in to write from it, were you a player or how did you get in on that side? Well, my experience with Shadowrun goes back to 1992. I also I was, was a Shadowrun geek then, so we could have played. <laughs> the night test lead on the Sega Genesis Shadowrun game. Ah. So I played that game for six weeks straight, like right down to dreaming about this game. Ah. Uh, after that, uh, I became a fan. Oh, you, you kind of had to be, become a fan if you were spending that kind of time in it. 
I read all the novels. I played the game. I've played probably second, third, fourth, fifth editions now. And I ended up getting into working for Shadowrun because I actually was writing for Dragonlance. And my editor, Sean Everett, turned introduced me to Rob Boyle, uh, who had been uh, the editor for Shadowrun and said, hey, this is Jennifer Brozak. She's one of my best freelancers and she loves Shadowrun. He whipped out a business card so fast. <laughs> it, was, it was beautiful. He said, we're always looking for new proofers. And for Shadowrun, proof, the proofer pool is where they start drawing their uh, writers from. You first work in the proofer pool and you prove that you know the, the material. You're easy to work with. You uphold what Shadowrun is about. And then you can write. Uh, there'll be a calls for submissions for maybe short stories or to write parts of the next supplement. And if your pitch is accepted, then you write and then hopefully you you are good enough to get into the book. So do, do these calls for submissions only go to the proof of pool? For Shadowrun? Yeah. Yes. yes. I have been talking with John Hoffers about possibly working on a Shadowrun magazine, just like the Battletech Shrapnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a possibility in the next couple of years. So there might end up being an open call. But right now, the Shadowrun writer pool is very tightly controlled. I was going to say, there's there's something, and this is my, my complaint to Shadowrun, that it led me astray for the world. Much in the way when I was a little girl, the cartoons had me believing that a bird was faster than a coyote, and that was a lie. <laughs> I played Shadowrun and I loved it, but they had Megacorp and these big, sprawling, expensive, enormous corporations always had the very latest technology and the very (laughs) cutting edge everything. And then I went to work for a series of three initial corporations and, and the bigger the corporation, the crappier the security was. And you don't need, all you need is like a ladder and maybe a hammer and a rope and you're in. And it was it was a little disappointing after all of those shadow runs that we did with our crew. Oh yeah, I, I I have worked for Microsoft. Then Microsoft bought my company when I was down in the Bay Area, Placeware, which then became Office Live Meeting. I spent a couple of years working for the company, and that's actually also how I ended up writing for Shadowrun because of the Redmond uh, aspect of it. In the Valley of Redmond, where shadows lie, <laughs> kind of like yeah. that. Up in the Seattle area, I mean, there's so many game companies, Bungie, Valve, Nintendo, Sega, you know, they're all up here. Microsoft is a series of fiefdoms where they do not necessarily play well with each other. And now that is something that Shadowrun got right about corporations, the infighting. Yes. You could... You could very, I went from the security research group, which was like Candyland. It was amazing. Happiest, most wonderful group of people I've ever worked with. And then I, then I went to work with the Azure data center people. And then, oh, the stories are real. Well, when I worked full time for Microsoft, I worked um, in office life meeting. I was one of the subject matter experts. I actually quit to write full time from Microsoft and then ended up going back for a short time to work in the hardware R&D as a vendor. And I was a team lead as a vendor, working with like the Toshiba active notifications. And I ended up stopping working for that when I ended up writing for Margaret Weiss on the Dragon World Adventures. Awesome. So we had 
talked about before of different key performance indicators for your writing career. How did you know that you were ready to just forego corporate America and write full time? Mm -hmm. This was how you knew that you'd made it and you were ready to do that. Uh, The short version was I didn't, but I decided to jump off the cliff anyway. After a couple of years working for Microsoft, and I'd moved up from the Bay Area, so I was able to buy my own house, and the house appreciated. I figured out between my investments and my house appreciation, I could take a year off and write. And I did. I, I did talk with my parents and ask them what they thought, and they said the best thing, which was absolutely do it, and if you fail, you can come home, which Aww. is absolutely not the thing I ever wanted to do. Yeah. Yes. So I had a safety net and the impetus not to fail. Yes. That's awesome. I understand. I understand. Good for your parents, though. Good for your parents. Yeah. Perhaps they like you. They, they do like me. They did very, very much so. I will tell you one of yeah. the secrets about me first writing on my own was, and I did write 330,000 words in that first year, and I sold more than 150,000 of them. Nice. But a lot of it was erotica. That's still pretty awesome. Yeah. And I will tell you, if you can set, uh, if you could be, you could be blunt or you could be vulgar, but you can't be both. <laughs> both is porn. One or the other is erotica. And if you can string two sentences together in a in a an evocative, visceral manner, you can sell a lot of erotica. Yes, I've, I've got some several friends who do that. Um, have a one pin name that they share, and they <laughs> they write lots of very good erotica. I mean, but it's very formulaic. And it's yep. very well written and good characters and good plot and you know exactly when the sex scenes are going to be and yeah it's good stuff. Good it, money. it gave me the confidence to know that I could write. And then while I was doing that, I was also writing articles for Blackgate and Campaign Magazine. And then I started pitching stories for Campaign Magazine. So I started making jobs for myself, but I had to to grow the confidence to do that. So how did you get started when you say being in a reader pool? And I know that you're an editor. I mean, you've been such a successful editor. I think you're up for an award right now, aren't you? I am up for the British Fantasy Award for my, I think it's 18th anthology. And they call the the Secret Guide to Fighting Elder Gods. Uh, I lost the Bram Stoker Award for that one as well this year. You didn't lose it. You just didn't win it. I did not win it. I was I was happily and honorably nominated for the Bram exactly. Award. Exactly. I'm I'm a big fan of Elder Gods. Well, I I tend to this one was a uh, young adult and teenager based. How would modern day teenagers fight the Elder Gods? Well, they're practically insane anyway. So you know, it's a short trip. They're also there, there's nothing like a teenager who believes. It's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the question was, I was saying when you got into reader pools, and I'm sort of looking at this, you came into it from a very interesting direction that nobody's mentioned before of being a set of readers, and then a little bit of editing first. And tell us about how you kind of moved sideways into that as you were getting confidence with your writing. Well, part of that was I met Sean Everett in a a muck, a multi-user created kingdom tech space. And I played a bard and I was already writing game reviews for Blackgate magazine, basically because I told Don Bathingwaite he needed to hire a female game reviewer. And so he said, okay, (laughs) which was nice because I told stories in the text game and I talked out of character about 
publishing articles and reviews for Blackgate, Sean Everett, when he got hired to be an editor for Sovereign Stone, one of Margaret Weiss's companies, he immediately hired me on because he had seen my writing. From there, it was a matter of actually going to uh, conventions, meeting people, putting myself out there, learning how to hand out a business card, ask for a business card, know when to follow up, and, and stuff like that. It, it was uh, the soft skills that we hardly ever talk about, but as it, it happened, I wrote a book about it. <laughs> Did you tell, tell us about your book? <laughs> I did write. I write a book. I wrote a book called Industry Talk, and it's got one half on basically how to be a freelancer and networker in the role playing game arena. Okay. Uh, everything from what kind of business card you should use to how do you talk to someone who is working at a convention and get their attention in a good way, not a bad way? And then the other half is what does the editor think about when they're putting together an anthology? And what was, does an editor articles. think about when they're putting together an anthology? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot to put think about. Everything from anchor stories, the first and last stories, because those are usually the first and last impressions, to what order do you want the table of contents to go into and why and what kind of flow to you have to be able to manage all the contracts. You have to mitigate any problems between the publisher and the author. You have to make sure the authors get paid. Uh, you have to basically herd cats from beginning to end, and it doesn't stop when you've turned in the manuscript. I mean, okay, um, do you do you edit the stories at all? Oh, yes, absolutely. Them? Yeah? The editor is your friend. And I know a lot of us as writers, we get very neurotic or very protective of our writing, but an, a good editor is like the light shining down on a model. You have the talent, the editor is there to, to bring it out and, and to point out when you've used the same word four times in eight sentences, or mm -hmm. you have repeated the same information, you know, four pages apart, or you have this giant plot hole that you didn't notice. But yeah, but it's, it's, it's always interesting. Um, I mean, I, you know, I've been selling stories for 40-something years, and I've been through all the possible combinations. You know, there were some, some editors in the early days who just changed things without telling me. These days, there are there a lot of sales where they just buy the story. And just at the moment, I have a number of editors who are very hands-on and diggity-diggity and and want to go through various numerous stages of, of of editorial input. It's it's fascinating to me the um, the range that is out there. It also depends on the particular work in progress. If it is a tie-in piece, the author has to realize that they don't own the piece. Yeah, they, it is work for hire, and the publisher, the the IP owner, has the right to say you're not writing this character correctly. Now, when it is an original work, yeah. uh, if it's a themed anthology or a themed um, group of stories, that's where the editor has to help the author massage the story into fitting into what they need. You, you just fit words around something that I'd been having a problem with with some of the writing on TV recently mm -hmm. of, oh, I love this character. I love this character. What the hell? That is a horrible <laughs> episode is this person like that? And then it took me, I was literally this many years old before I started looking up who the different writing teams were and saying, 
aha, I don't think that person gets it. And they wrote something completely different. And okay, I'm just going to look for what they wrote and pretend it's not canon. Right. So, there's, certain, there's certain things when you're doing tie-in fiction, your job is to enhance and uh, expand the world without breaking it. You need to keep the theme and the tone the same. It's like if you're writing for Lovecraft, you honestly can't go in the paranoid direction mm. or paranoia. Although you can think about it, that would be an interesting combination. Oh, I'm certain you could figure it out, but I'm definitely not that person. I'm oh, see, now I'm thinking the computer is your friend. What if the computer had secretly been taken over by Nyarlathotep? <laughs> the thing that I didn't like about paranoia is the the comedic aspect. I don't I don't do comedy very well. I just mostly kill people fictionally. Well, and I understand that. I really do. And I, I enjoyed, like, for instance, I noticed that you were part of the Horror Writers Association. Yes. Tell us, uh, we haven't talked to anybody who's a member of that before. What does oh. the Horror Writers Association do for folks? We know CIFWA. Tell us about HWA. Well, the Horror Writers Association is, does for horror writers and thriller writers what CIFWA does for science fiction and fantasy writers. They act as a professional organization that uh, helps horror writers on a number of different issues, everything from networking to um, a version of Griefcom, like if you're having a problem with a publisher, to they run the Bram Stoker Awards, to running a, a series of classes, Stoker University. They, they run classes online for upcoming and prospective writers. Um, they also do writing classes for teenagers. It's another professional writing organization that you have to meet a professional um, guideline to become a part of. But once you become a part of it, like any organization, you get out of it what you put into it, which is one of the reasons I volunteered for CIFWA and I volunteered for the Horror Writers Association. And also IAMTW. Yes. I don't volunteer. I don't have a volunteer. Um, actually, I do do jury duty, but I'm not, I'm not one of the, the, the admin volunteer people for the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers. Right. That's basically the organization, which I think is actually one of the easiest and hardest professional organizations to get into. All you need is one tie-in work that you have been paid for. Yeah, all you need is. So, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, there is something that we, you use the term jury, and we've never really talked about jury or how awards come around here. So tell us about being on a jury for well, an association. What happens if you're on a jury for one of the, the professional awards, uh, like the Stokers or the Scribe Awards, you agree to read every submission that comes in. And there are a lot of them, depending on which uh, category you're in. If you are whatever category you're on the jury for, you cannot um, submit. to. So you make sure that there is a definite separation between you, the writer, and you, the jury person. And you can't talk about your work when you're a member of the jury. Uh, you read every one, you score it, you discuss it with the other jury members, and depending on which particular award it is, they may choose the top 10, or they may choose the top five. And those are the ones that go to the next level, whatever that next level is. Um, I just found out that the British Fantasy Award, well, this year when I was nominated, because I didn't actually realize I could be nominated, so I didn't know anything about the award, I found out that 
a secret guide to fighting elder gods had gotten enough recommendations to make it to the jury. And then after that, I just provided the, my publisher provided books to the jury and that's what I know. So I don't know their particular process because I've never worked for them, but I imagine it's somewhat same. They read every submission, they discuss it, they, they have a certain set of merits that they compare the work to. You know, Chaz, having been... Yeah, um, I, the, you're, um, you're exactly right, Jennifer. I see the, the BFS award has been through a number of permutations during my uh, membership of the association. Yeah, we, I mean, we went from a straightforward popularity vote to a all the members get to nominate... And those that get the most nominations then go to a jury system. Um, and yeah, that's exactly how the jury works. Okay. I had a lovely question I wanted to ask. Yeah, have you ever been on a jury where you personally profoundly disagreed with the decision that the jury finally came to? Uh, I have been on a jury where there were, where you have like, the, you put in the top 10 or the top five, yeah. where... At least one of those top five I have thought was just outrageous. <laughs> but jury awards are based on very specific criteria for that award. So despite the fact that I did not agree that this particular um, product should have been in the top five, clearly the other jury members did. Mm. And in that case, they were seeing something that I wasn't. Right. So it wasn't like, you know, it, they, they had decided that one would win. Mm. It, they decided that one went up to the next yeah. level. Yeah, absolutely. Like Did the Brent Stoker Awards, you can get in by jury or by popular nomination. Oh, really? Yeah, there's two ways to get in. Yeah. The year that I was long listed for the short story collection and the young adult novel Never Let Me Sleep, Never Let Me Sleep went okay. to the jury, Apocalypse Girl Dreaming, was a popular um, oh, nice. recommendation. Um, yeah, and now, now that you're talking about this, can I can I take us off on another path? Can sure. you talk a bit about your own work? Because you've, you've talked a lot about tie-ins and some about editing, but you haven't mentioned your own separate individual, this is what I write work. Well, what I like to write is either urban hidden world urban fantasy with a lot of different moving parts of uh, secret organizations. The Carrie Wilson Chronicles, which is my first urban fantasy uh, series, was set in the Pacific Northwest in a fictional town of Kendrick that had mostly human supernatural factions fighting each other for control of the city. Mm -hmm. It also did have like gargoyles and fae and ghosts and uh, witches and such like that. Cool. And I do love urban fantasy. I do write a lot of that. In fact, I have another Kendrick story coming out very soon. It's been a, it's been about eight years since I've written in that uh, world, but since I'm not allowed to actually say what venue that's coming out in. Sure. Yeah. Eventually. But okay. then so there's, if it, I mean, if it's been eight years, why did you go back to it? Because I was asked to write something in okay. the urban fantasy yeah. arena and the editor mentioned the Karen Wilson Chronicles as something that she liked. Right. And I was like, well, I haven't written in Kendrick, but sure, I can do Kendrick. <laughs> uh, the other one I like to write is young adult sci-fi thrillers. And that was the Mel- Melissa Allen series. Never Let Me Sleep, Never Let Me Leave, Never Let Me Die. 
And I honestly think that's one of the tightest trilogies I've written. I wrote the whole thing in 18 months. Wow. And it is about a troubled teenager who's bipolar and schizophrenic who wakes up one day and everybody's dead and she has to figure out what happened, keep it from happening again. Mm. And the whole time she's wondering if she's having a psychotic break. Sure. You know, I have to check that out. That sounds like catnip for me. (laughs) that that, That one currently is only an audiobook, but uh yeah i was noticing that those were out of print but yeah but it's currently an audiobook but i can't really announce it but there's some stuff of mine that is out of print that is going to be coming back into print very soon good, good. but you, until all contracts are signed and i'm given permission yeah. i can't yeah yeah you have a you have a beautiful way of point of something that I have felt for some time now when you talk about urban and supernatural and you talk about these things and yet what comes out of your mouth is what other people is like fantasy and horror really are just two sides of the same coin aren't they Oh they are uh, I have always said that horror is actually as a flavor rather than a genre but yeah. I, I've had other people argue me into that no it's it's got its own genre um, Doug Winter um the novelist said in my hearing that horror is not a genre it's an emotion yes and i really like that it is true and most of what i write even if it's battle tech or even if it's shadowrun it has a flavor of horror to it because fictional horror is something that i can fix yeah it's something that the reader can read and right well i i was i was very much a a not much of a fan of horror and then this last year i read um michael marshall smith's best of collection because taz was um proofing it and it's like oh duh i was really missing some key aspects of what horror means because i i was exposed to bad horror early on and i said oh but well, you're right. day of horror is often the modern day fairy tale yeah they're the cautionary tales from for the modern age. Peter yeah, Pan. We were discussing Peter Pan before of how it really is a horrific story mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. What does he do with the Lost Boys when they get too old? Well, he kills them or feeds them to the alligator. Or- yeah, but again, that was an allegory for for you know this is this is what happens when you're in, in a time when children died young. This is where they went. It was more of a kind of a story for to explain to kids, you know, why their siblings, you know, what happened to their siblings when they died, you know, and stuff, which is why it's horrible um, things in Neverland blood. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Alligators. Like yes. alligators. I don't know that it's comforting. Well, <laughs> when, you're, when you're a little kid, I mean, depending on what type of little kid you are, but um, even hearing something horrible, as long as it's an explanation. And I think that's one of the reasons that he, um, that the rights to Peter Pan are go to the, belong to the Great Ormond Street, Great Ormond Street Hospital. Hospital. Yeah. Children's Hospital. Children's Hospital is because it was actually a story for children to explain, to explain, you know, a way of explaining death, a way of making death understandable for little children. But again, horror, I think, has that, that property because it is a way of helping us understand the bad things, okay, or the scary things. It no, puts the, the hope that you can overcome them. Yeah, yes. Many exactly. horror novels end on a very positive note. I would say it's sort of like in the way that a lot of the horror movies do. It's like, well, mostly they escape, mostly. Or 
mostly it's defeated in some way. Um, you know, the, there's always some sort of, some sort of, there's no peril. There's no peril. Then it's kind of like, you know, it's a tea party. So it's all about raising the stakes and making the listener or the reader or the watcher care about why you want to root for this person or why you want this other person to die or are they going to get what's coming to them? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Do you have any new horror stories coming out soon? What do you have on the, in the pipe for us? In the pipe, I have another Shadowrun novella. Uh, it's a young adult Shadowrun novella called See How She Runs. That is supposed to be out in the next couple of months. I don't have an actual date. And then I have the third in my Rogue Academy trilogy, uh, Battletech Crimson Knight. And that will come out at the end of April. And that is definitely, like the things I did to those teenagers in that Battletech <laughs> trilogy, whew, I never want to actually meet one of my characters in a dark alley. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, none of them. Uh, well, most of them not. I mean, I... I think they might have a few uh, choice words for you, the writer. <gasps> That's her this voice. I hear true. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. So I, let's see. Coming out. I have a, um, actually, I edited a, in Lovecraft poetry anthology with John Helfers as part of a Kickstarter that's coming out. Actually, it should be in the next month called uh, Haiku Cthulhu. <laughs> oh. Yeah, oh, and it's actually quite a lot of fun. And for once... I, I almost never put a story or a poem or anything into something I've edited. But for once, uh, my co-editor is like, I want you to put in a poem. And he wanted to put something in. So we edited each other. Edited each other. Nice. Nice. Excellent. Well, we will put links to Jennifer's work and the upcoming novels on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. Jennifer, if somebody comes back and says, I want to know more about this, tell me this. Can we send you an email? Will, they an will you answer it for them? Oh, absolutely. I'm also on uh, Twitter under Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Brozek. Uh, and my DMs are open. Uh, and I tend to answer as many questions as, as possible, because I believe and share the love because the publishing industry is incredibly small and eventually we're going to work together. So I want you to succeed. <laughs> and I'm also on Facebook, Jennifer Brozek. And if you want to see any of my four cats, it's Jennifer underscore Brozek at Instagram. Okay. Cat <laughs> pictures. We yes. will put them up there. Send me your favorite four kitties cat picture and we'll add it with this episode. Okay, I can do that. All right, you've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Lingberg. You can hear more from Michael Lingberg at manyhatsmusic.com. Our sponsors are art, coffee, chocolate, and rum in any four particular orders. So we love Jackal's design, we love the bean scene, and everything else is negotiable. And hey, thanks for listening out there. <laughs> <laughs>